uh, really uh, pleased to announce, uh, to, to welcome our, our guest uh, preacher. And I want to just introduce him by a little bit of how I have known him. So my fir- today's my first day getting to see him in real life. Uh, but I've been reading uh, his writings since I was very uh, young. I think the first uh, Bible that I really uh, read uh, and like studied was the student Bible where he wrote a commentary. And um, uh, then the first Christian book uh, that I really remember uh, reading on my own uh, was this one, The Jesus That I Never Knew. And I remember the end of that book thinking that Jesus was cool. Uh, and that he was cooler than the Jesus that I had heard about. And uh, I wanted to know him more, and I'm, you know, eternally grateful for that. I think it was somewhere around college I read, What's So Amazing About Grace? Seems like everyone's read that one. Uh, Fantastic. And it was later when I was in full-time ministry, and yet also struggling with my relationship with God, uh, wondering, like, um, you know, where, where is God? Why can't I hear him? that I, I read this book that you wrote, Disappointment with God, and you speak about hearing uh, the silence. Uh, this one's my next book that I'm going to read, uh, your memoirs. I mean, just uh, such a profound impact that you've had on uh, so many of us, and we're so, uh, so grateful that you took time today to be with us. Let's welcome Philip Yancey. Thank you. I, uh, I thought if I came out here, surely they'd give me tickets to the game yesterday, but <laughs> that's why I chose today. But actually, I've had a tie with this church kind of indirectly. My brother lives here in Milpitas, and a number of years ago, he had a stroke, needed some help, and this church stepped up. Uh, the Burks, Joe and Kirstie and, and Susan McKenzie helped us. It was kind of a senior citizen's moving day where we... We found ways to get him into an apartment. And then one of the life groups from this church kind of adopted my brother. And over the years, they've passed him down from generation to generation. And the, the current ones are, are Charlie and Joanne Foss over here. And uh, Marshall assures me that of all the groups he's had, she makes the best lemon meringue pie of any of them. <laughs> and I'd like to meet some more of you. And I did bring some books, the, the ones that... Uh, Pastor mentioned, and I will be in the back, and I guarantee you, they are much cheaper than you pay on Amazon. <laughs> so I'm going to talk today about the big picture, and, and Todd, whoever chose these songs, those were great setups. We didn't really talk a lot about what I was going to say, but they were wonderful setups because I thought, oh, let's see, I'm going to start with creation. I'm going to start with the big bang. And I'm going to tackle, in, in this morning service, I'm going to tackle some of the real mysteries of the faith, like the Trinity. Why is there a planet Earth? You know, just basic questions like that. And I know you've started the book of Mark, a study of the book of Mark. And there are, you probably know, four Gospels, and they're all quite different. Matthew and Luke started at the beginning of Jesus' life, so that's where we get all our Christmas stories. And, and Mark jumps right in. In the first chapter, uh, Jesus is already upsetting the religious establishment. He's healing people. He's casting out demons. He's announcing the kingdom. He's touching people who have leprosy. He's, he's acting like the son of God. And then he kind of squeezes, Mark squeezes in, well, there was this baptism and the guy who came first, John the Baptist. But all this is in the first chapter. And uh, 
boy, you're, you're just tired reading chapter one. But tucked into that, Jesus calls his disciples, and that's what you're going to be studying over the next few weeks. Follow me, Jesus called his disciples. And, and that's pretty important. That's really what Jesus had in mind from the very beginning. He didn't come to do the work of the kingdom of God all by himself. He called to get people enrolled in doing the work of the kingdom of God. So he called Simon and Andrew, he called James and John, and in the next chapter, he, he calls all 12 and gets them going. So, uh, then I go to John. John is very different. John starts by where I'm going to start this morning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So John's in there pretty deep, and he's, he's talking about big cosmic things, and that's what I want to talk about this morning. Why is there an earth? Where did it come from? What did God have in mind, and, and what is our role in that? Some of you go hiking probably in the Sierras. I'm from, I'm from Colorado, and uh, I've climbed a lot of the 14ers in Colorado, 14,000-foot mountains. And, and when you go up there, you, you realize something you may not know if you live in downtown San Jose. There are actually stars in the sky. They're, <laughs> they're up there. And, and I, I brought a picture for those of you who haven't seen them. Um, you, you can, there are actually, you count them, if we can, yeah, there we go. Beautiful picture. And if you counted them with a naked eye in a clear day, you can see about 6,000 stars, a lot. You know, people will do a little map and then multiply it out, how big the sky is. 6,000 stars. So for 99% of human history, people thought there were 6,000 stars. But there's this one area that looked like kind of a dust cloud. And people studied that and wondered what that was. Well, it's a cloud of dust. And this one guy... Edwin Hubble, in 1925, decided, no, that's not actually a dust cloud. I think that's another galaxy. Galaxy, what's that? A galaxy is kind of a, a home <laughs> to a whole bunch of stars. So we knew about the Milky Way. All these stars are in the Milky Way. But people didn't know for all of history that there was actually another galaxy. And then they found another one, which we call Andromeda. Okay, so now there are two galaxies. And Edwin Hubble is, is very renowned, so when they launched this space telescope to look at the universe, they, they came up at, with what they call the Hubble Space Telescope. And the Hubble Space Telescope is orbiting around right now. And, and they decided, we've got power to see that no one has ever had before. So this guy proposed an experiment. He said, what if we get the Hubble Space Telescope to focus on this one little dot, a dot the size of one grain of sand held at arm's length, that, that big. And every time it orbits the Earth, 400 times, every time it orbits the Earth, we'll have it take a different picture of that dot. And then we can put them all together. And, and this is actually what they took. The reason they chose that area to take a picture of was because it, they thought it was empty, it was black. There was nothing there, and they thought, Maybe there is something there. So that's why they kept taking picture after picture 400 times. And then when they developed them, you can Google it, look it up. It's called the extreme deep field or the ultra deep field sky. And they found out in that one little dot, there were, okay, get ready for this, 10,000 galaxies. 
not stars, galaxies. And each of those galaxies has 100 billion stars in that little dot. And then one inch to the left, another 10,000 galaxies. One inch to the right, another 10,000 galaxies. And <laughs> we have discovered, latest finding, first they thought, well, there are 6,000 stars, and no, there's another galaxy, and then, well, maybe there are 100 billion stars in our galaxy, and now they believe there are 2 trillion galaxies, each with 100 billion stars. Whoa. <laughs> Whoa. So when I was singing this, How Great Thou Art, when I consider the worlds thy hands have made, whoo. Makes you feel very small, doesn't it? And, and the story that I want to talk about today is the story of the Bible. It's the, the plot of the Bible. And I want to start with that, what I call the Hubble Space Telescope view of God. <laughs> it's a good thing for us to realize who you're dealing with when you're dealing with God. And you go back to those, those songs we were singing, How Great Thou Art, and Holy, Holy, Holy. We're talking about the maker of two trillion Galaxies, that God. The story of the Bible is, how can a God that big and awesome and overwhelming possibly relate to little tiny people on one pale blue dot in one little medium-sized galaxy in one tiny corner of the universe of two trillion galaxies? That's the story of the Bible. That big Hubble Space Telescope God and little old us. What, as the psalmist prayed, said, when I consider the works of your hands, I have to ask myself, why, why should you care about us? What, what, how do we rate? What are we supposed to do in the face of a God like that? And the Bible tells that story. Have you ever tried to explain the Trinity to, say, a Muslim or a Jew or a five-year-old. <laughs> it's pretty hard. We, we just sang that last song, ended with Blessed Trinity. And, and that actually is the story of the Bible. It's a story in three acts. You know, sometimes you go to a play, maybe, and there's a murder mystery, and there's act one, and you think you got it figured out, and oh, no, then act two come along, comes along, and it wasn't that person after all, it was somebody else, and then act three, and everything's up in the air, and then finally at the very end, it just all clicks. Oh, I get it. That's what the play is about. Well, that's the story of the, of the Trinity, act one, act two, and act three. Act one starts in um, the, what we call the Old Testament. It's when God, the Hubble Space Telescope God, said, I'm not going to deal with the entire world at one time. I'm going to start with one person, Abraham. And when you go through Genesis, the first book of the Bible, it's one by one. There's stories about Abraham, and then Isaac, and then Jacob, and then finally Joseph, a lot of stories about Joseph, and, and, and they have a detour into Egypt, and you know that story, and there are a whole bunch of slaves, and, and then eventually they are set free by God, and God takes them and moves them into another place and, and creates a culture, a nation. He tells them what to wear and what to eat and what not to eat. You know, some of my favorite foods, lobster and shellfish and scallops or... Jews didn't do that and still don't. 
observant ones. And, and, and why did God do that? Well, because he didn't want to deal with the entire world at a time. He wanted, to, he wanted to create a peculiar people who showed the world what he had in mind with the human race in the first place. So I'm going to start with these people, the Israelites. You know, it didn't work out all that well, actually. So you, you go back and you think, what was God up to? Well, God wanted to, to, to have a kingdom of priests, a, a peculiar people, so that we could look at them and say, that's what God wants. And sometimes they showed that and sometimes they did not. If you had gone to the Israelites who were wandering around in the Sinai wilderness and you asked, what is God like? 12-year-old girl, what is God like? Oh, well, well, God is scary. God is big. God is awesome. See that mountain over there, that mountain that's smoking like a volcano with fire coming out of it? That's what God is like. You can't get close to him. We have this leader, Moses, and he's the only one who can actually meet with God. They have a special tent for him. And when Moses goes in and meets with God, when he comes out, he's glowing. It's so bright, we can't even look at him. He has to put on a special veil or otherwise we'd go blind. That's what God is like. So they understood the kind of the awesomeness, the scariness, the power of God. But there's one thing that they didn't understand too well. The love of God. A lot of, a lot of the things that, that we struggle with, the Israelites did not struggle with. So, for example, I, I don't think there were any Jewish atheists back then. I don't believe in God. Oh, you don't. Well, here's a cure. Just go over and touch that mountain over there. And for one nanosecond, you will believe in God right before you're incinerated. Oh, okay. <laughs> Things like guidance. What does God want to do? Well, in, in those days, God had a pillar of cloud and a, and a pillar of fire. And you just follow that cloud. And God makes the decisions for you. God tells you what to eat, what to wear, all that stuff. Some things are simplified, but... That was just kind of the primitive stage of God getting to know people. When, when I was in high school, I liked animals, very small animals. <laughs> I had an ant farm. <laughs> Do they still have these things? You, you get these little plastic deals and get some ants and they make all these tunnels and you drop some food in there and blah, blah. And, and I, I was, they're not very affirming pets. Every time I would reach in there, they would try to bite me. Even when I'm trying to, you know, help them out and give them food and things like that. And then, and then later I got a saltwater aquarium. And these, these are expensive fish, you know, $50, $100, whatever, for one fish. And they're floating around and, and I'm very proud of them. And I kept them for years. And every time I stood up and went near them to feed them, they'd all go hide in shells. Again, not very affirming. I'm so big. <laughs> they, do, they can't understand me. They can't relate to me. They can't see. They, they always think I'm trying to kill them. No, no, I'm trying to help you. But they don't get it. Act one. Then act two came along, and, and we just remembered that. Act two was when the Hubble Space Telescope God creator of two trillion galaxies, decided to come to that one pale blue dot in person, as a person. God understood that the ants don't get it. 
the only way they can is if you become an ant, a tropical fish. And it, it changed history. This morning I turn on my computer and, and, and Bill Gates tells me it's 2,024 years after that event when God became a person. And, and John in his cosmic view talks about the, the word was with God and the word was God and yet God, God came and dwelled among us or as Eugene Peterson translated it, God, God moved into the neighborhood. God joined the ant farm. God shrank down into the aquarium. That's act two. And if you're raised, if you're raised as a good Jew with that image of a volcano, and here's this guy going around saying, I, I am the son of God, and if, you've see, if you want to know what the father is like, look at me. If you've seen me, you've seen the father. What? Kill that guy. And they did. They did. He didn't measure up to their understanding of what God should be like. There's a vast improvement on, on how that God, that awesome God, can relate to us. You could argue with Jesus. People did. You could ask him questions. You could shake hands with him. You could crucify him. That's act two. The son of God. And later Paul looked back and said, Jesus is the exact image of the invisible God, which is just a fancy way of saying, if you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. And the most surprising and impressive thing about Act 2 is what they learned about God. Because it wasn't that scary, thundering, volcano God. It was a God of mercy and forgiveness. So they bring a woman to Jesus and said, uh, she got caught in the act of adultery. What do we do? We're supposed to kill her, right? That's what Moses said. And Jesus said, no, whoever, whoever is, has no sin among you, go ahead, cast the first stone. And then he tells her, just go and do it no more. Your, your sins are forgiven. That was a different kind of God, a God of mercy and forgiveness and love. Some of us need to correct our image of God. There, there's a statement I read from a, a British archbishop about 100 years ago. He said, in God, there is no unchrist-likeness at all. In God, there is no unchrist-likeness at all, which is a fancy British archbishop's way of saying, if you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. And if your image of God is stuck it's stuck in that old image of the frowning kind of super cop in the sky just looking for people who might be enjoying themselves so he could smash them. That's what I grew up with. If your image is stuck, you need to clean it up. And the best way to clean it up is to look at Jesus. And if your God doesn't measure up with Jesus, you've missed act two. You've missed, you've missed what Jesus came to express. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. There's a problem, though. Jesus, for all the good he did, didn't affect that many people in the world. He did nothing for the United States of America or South America or China or Europe or Antarctica or Australia. He only affected a few thousand people in this tiny little corner of the Roman Empire. 
And from the very beginning, from Mark 1, from the very beginning, he was clear about that. He said, I didn't come to do it all by myself. I came to get some Jesus followers, follow me, and I'm going to turn it over to you. And he trained them for about three years, and they made a lot of mistakes. When he would ask them a question, they'd almost always give the wrong answer, and he's always having to correct them because they're squabbling about who's the greatest and blah, blah, blah. And, and Jesus and then Jesus said, but okay, I've done my work. I, I'm finished. Act two is, is over here. And I'm, I'm going to leave. It's actually for your good that I'm leaving. And the, there's this funny scene in, in the first couple chapters of Acts where he gathers his disciples together. You know, he started with these two sets of brothers and then the 12 and focused on those 12. And then a few hundred others followed, followed him when he was on earth. And, and a crowd of them had gathered on this mountaintop, and they thought, he's back from the dead. He was dead, but he's resurrected. So now are you going to restore the kingdom? Now are you going to do it, Jesus? And he said, he said no, uh, it's up to you now. I'm turning the mission over to you. Bye. And like a hot air balloon, he floats up into the sky. And here are these guys standing there, looking up into the sky, and an angel appears and says, what are you doing looking into the sky? <laughs> Didn't he tell you? Go into all the world and proclaim the good news of the Hubble Space Telescope God who loves human beings and can't wait to have a relationship with them and forgive them and live inside them. That's Act 3. And the reason it's good for you is because God is spirit and God is big enough to live inside us, to get small, to live inside us, every one of us. God can handle all 8 billion people in the human race at a time. That's what infinite, it's a God of, it's the Hubble Space Telescope God of 2 trillion galaxies. Act 1, Act 2, Act 3. I'm from Denver, Colorado. We have a, we have a football team too. It's the uh, Denver Broncos, and uh, they actually won a couple of Super Bowls in my lifetime. And since then, this guy named Peyton Manning came along and, uh, and led us to those Super Bowls. Since then, we have had 13 starting quarterbacks, including one we paid $200 million for. And it, it, it's easy. <laughs> That's how we feel. And it's easy to think, um, you know, if this doesn't work, let's try something else. Let's try another quarterback. 13 times I've done that. Let's try another coach. Let's try another defensive coordinator. And they, and they keep doing that. And it's easy to think when you look at these three acts, you know, God's, oh, that didn't work too well. Oh, I know. I think I'll, I'll become a human. Oh, but then they killed me. Oh, oh okay. But I rose again. And and that didn't work, so let's try. No, if you read the Bible, it's very clear. The progression is, is there from the very beginning. This is what God had in mind all along. God is not interested in doing it all by himself. He, does, he doesn't have anything to prove. He has something to love, though. And, and love, most of the time when we use... When we use the word love, it's, it's more like a verb. I love you, we say. But for God, it's, 
it's, it's a noun. It's an adjective. It's, it's who God is. It's God's essence. God is love, the Apostle John tells us. God is love. The problem is, the only way anybody ever experiences that is if you have an object to love. If, you, if there's nothing else but you, you can't love. I guess you can love yourself, but you can't really love like we know love. And the only way you can do that is to create something to love. And that's where it comes down to us in Milpitas, California in the year 2024. Why are we here? Why, why is there a pale blue dot? Why is there an earth? You know, this used to be a Presbyterian church, I heard, and, and the Westminster Confession spells that out. Why, what is the whole duty and purpose of man? Anybody know? Oh, good. They're still teaching this stuff. To, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's a really good start. One problem is it doesn't say what's in it for God. It talks about what's in it for us. It, it, it's a, the best life is to enjoy God and glorify God and enjoy him forever. But what's in it for, why would God do it in the first place? Why? 200 billion galaxies. <laughs> Two trillion, rather. Why would God do that? And, and the best way to understand it is, is an analogy that you see all the way through the Bible, actually, and it's an analogy of what it's like to be a parent. So, for example, a man has uh, uh, a daughter, and he notices she's really skilled, especially at soccer. She can, she can bend it like Beckham. So uh, she's in this tournament, and, and uh, it's, it's where the earthquakes play. You named your soccer team earthquakes? <laughs> of course, we have the Colorado Avalanche, if we understand. And the guy is up, in the, her, her father is up in the stands, and he's looking down, and she's got the game of her life. She's in Earthquake Stadium, and she's, she gets number one, and then she gets a second goal, and he says, can she possibly get a hat track? And she does. She gets a hat track. So what does he do? He says, that girl, she's trying to show up for old men. I want to get a hold of her. I'll break her kneecaps. No. No. Did you see that? That's my girl. That's my, that's my daughter. And not only that, she's going to be a doctor. She's going to med school. That's my girl. Mark 1, go back and read it. Mark 1 is one of the few times, there are more, where the entire Trinity, Act 1, Act 2, Act 3, are, are present. So Jesus is getting baptized. That's Act 2. And the Holy Spirit descends like a dove. That's Act 3. And then there's a voice that people could hear from, from heaven. It sounded like thunder growling. That's Act 1, God the Father. What does God say? God does this about four times in the Gospels. And every time he says exactly the same thing. He says, this is my beloved son of whom I am well pleased. That's my girl. <laughs> That's my boy. That's my son. He makes me happy. That's why I create. They make me happy. You know, sometimes I, I lie in bed at night 
And, and I asked myself, did I do anything today that made God happy, that pleased God? And sometimes I can think of some. Most of the time I can think of things that probably displeased God. <laughs> it's a good exercise. What did I do? Because I believe that's why God bothered with the two trillion galaxies. Because they gave him pleasure. Because they made God happy. So what is our mission? Well, our mission, and some people get this wrong, is, is not to clean up the United States of America or the Roman Empire in Jesus' day. He, he, he didn't seem to care about the state of the Roman Empire. Our mission is to establish little, little examples, little advanced examples of what the kingdom of God is like so that people would say, oh, that's what God is like. God is not like one of those angry, divisive, snobby, competitive kind of people. God is, God is a God of grace. God is a God of mercy. God is a God of forgiveness. And when Jesus talked about the kingdom, he only used small things. He didn't talk about the biggest skyscraper, the biggest castle. The big. He talked about, it, it's like a, a sprinkling of salt on a piece of meat. A little sprinkling of salt keeps the whole meat from going stale. He, he talked about the kingdom of God is like a little bit of yeast that causes a whole loaf of bread to rise. Not the big loaf, but just, just the yeast. And he said the kingdom of God is like the smallest seed in the garden. Not the largest, not the medium size, but the smallest seed in the garden. But out of that seed grows a great tree and the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. That's the kingdom of God. And that's what we should be doing, planting those seeds. One time I went to uh, Sweden. I'd never been to Sweden, and uh, it's a beautiful city. It, it, uh, I, I, I was so impressed with the Swedes. There's, there's no litter. There's no graffiti. On, on the charts, they're at the very top of being environmentally sensitive and charitable, and they're friendly for Swedes, you know. Um, <laughs> and... And I happened to be reading a book on the history of Europe on this trip. And in that book, it told me that for 250 years, most prayers on the continent of Europe ended with this line, Lord, save us from the Vikings. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and then I landed in Stockholm, Sweden. I thought, what are they talking about? I mean, these are some of the nicest people I've never met. They're, they have high values. They're, they're, they're great. What happened? What happened to turn a bunch of raping, pillaging warriors into modern-day Swedes? Well, the gospel happened. The gospel happened. And you could say, well, I, I read that most Swedes are actually atheists and only 5% go to church. You're right. You're right. But what happened was... Exactly what Jesus said. The smallest seed of the garden took root and created a tree. And out of that tree, birds come and nest in its branches. That's what happened to Sweden. That's the way the gospel works. It doesn't, it doesn't convert everybody in the entire society, but it just starts working like yeast, like salt on bread. In the early days, 
when Christians were in the Roman Empire, they really, they had no political power. You couldn't vote. <laughs> I mean, what were their choices? Caligula, Nero. <laughs> you think we got weak choices in our presidential primaries? Go read Roman history. And they couldn't even vote. <laughs> and yet, somehow, that tiny little group of follow me Jesus followers who were odd, who were persecuted, who were fed to lions, who were thrown in prison, within about 300 years, they took over the Roman Empire. More than 50% of all people were followers of Jesus. How did that happen? Well, historians tell you it worked like this. Romans had pandemics, just like we just had a bad one. Theirs were even worse. They had bubonic plague and things like that. And, and in those days, when a pandemic would hit a village, hit a town, the Romans would go flee into the hills where they thought the air was clearer and get away from those sick people. The Christians would stay behind and nurse not only their families, but their pagan neighbors' families as well. They, they didn't have abortion in the Roman Empire. It was much worse. They let the babies be born, and then they just left them by the side of the road for weather or wild animals to take care of. Historians say about a third of all babies born in the Roman Empire were just abandoned like that and left to die. And the Christians started saying, I don't think that's right. I, that, that's a, that baby was loved by God created in God's image, and they started taking them in and nursing them and bringing them back to life and having foster families. It was a very good thing for church growth. <laughs> and after a while, people said, you know, I like the way they live better than the way I live. I want what they've got. <laughs> and that's really how Christianity spread in the Roman Empire. It wasn't at the point of a sword. It wasn't at a ballot box. It was by people acting like God showing people what God had in mind with the human race. Act 1, Act 2, Act 3, the whole thing goes toward us being filled with God's Spirit, demonstrating to the world what God is like. You know, i got to tell you, if, if I were God, I wouldn't have done it that way. If I were God, I would have a lot more confidence in me. <laughs> rather than turn the mission over to people like us. And why did God do that? Because it makes him happy. The, the same thrill you feel as a parent when your child does something that you, you never thought them capable of. That's my boy. That's my girl. I'll close with an illustration that comes from my hometown, Evergreen, Colorado. Evergreen, Colorado uh, still has a, a high school orchestra. They look like that, these kids in jeans and T-shirts, you know. And, and um, you, can go, you can go to Evergreen High School concerts. For 20 years, when Janet and I lived in downtown Chicago, we heard... Uh, we, we were subscribers to the Chicago Symphony. We've heard a lot of concerts. Then we moved to Evergreen, Colorado, and we found that um, there's not a lot of resemblance between what we heard in Orchestra Hall in Chicago and the gymnasium in Evergreen High School. In fact, 
Every once in a while, the Evergreen High School Orchestra will play a great piece like Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. And trust me, the screechy, scratchy, out of tune, out of rhythm sounds coming out of that orchestra are not what the maestro Ludwig von Beethoven had in mind. But, but what I've learned is don't blame Beethoven. It's not his fault. <laughs> and every once in a while, that group of ragtag musicians hit the right note. And that's my illustration of the church. <laughs> People look at the church and they say, yeah, right, it all sounds good in the Bible, but let me tell you about my neighbor. Let me tell you about, yeah, they're right, they're right. Yeah, they're right. We do a lot of things. Right. We're, like, we're a whole lot more like the Evergreen High School Orchestra than we are like the Chicago Symphony. But every once in a while, every once in a while, we do hit the right note of grace and mercy. And people say, oh, maybe that's what God is like. And when we do, those pure sounds, there are people in Evergreen who would never have heard of Beethoven, much less heard his music apart from that high school orchestra. And when we hit the right notes, that's my boy. That's my girl. It gives God pleasure. Jesus didn't stick around very long. He, he only worked about three years, short career. Um, he was killed. <laughs> A lot of the people he left behind who said they were never going to stop following him did. You know, even Peter. I never knew the book of the guy. And yet, God found a way to dwell among his people. The Hubble Space Telescope God of two trillion galaxies found a way, found a way to join the ant farm. And when Jesus left, he said, he said, it's up to you now. I've done my job. My work is finished. It's up to you. Your job, my job, is to bear the incomparable message about a song we're going to hear from the worship band about the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God for all creation. Because that's what it's about. That's the story that we have to tell the world. That yes, <laughs> that God is a big and awesome and scary God. It's a God of love. And behind creation, behind everything there is, is that word love. That's why we exist. So that God can say, that's my boy. That's my girl. God has invited us to join the process begun at the creation of the universe to proclaim and live out the reckless love of God. Amen. <clears throat> Still you give yourself away. We just sang. God has been giving God's self away since the very first moment of creation, the Big Bang. And the primary way he's doing it now is through people like this church, 
and us. May you go forth encouraged to bear the message of that reckless, incomprehensible, overwhelming love of God, a message Milpitas, California, badly needs. Amen. <laughs>